0: And again, it's wonderful to see you this morning, and to be with you, and to worship with you this morning. Uh, as Damon said, I will be leading us in this morning worship, and I'm certainly happy to uh, open the Word with you, and that we may learn from it, that it may be profitable for us. Uh, you know, of course, that anytime time the Word is preached, even if it is preached uh, meanly or basely, or even if it's preached out of a sense of uh, arrogance or pride, Paul gave glory even to the gospel that was preached by the enemies of Christ who preached against him because the gospel was being preached. So again, it's a privilege to be with you and to preach and to relay the gospel news of Jesus Christ this morning. I would like to simply start with a question, which is simply this, what does it mean to rest? Webster's Dictionary defines the word rest in a number of ways, such as a bodily state characterized by minimal function or metabolic activities freedom from activity or labor, a place of rest or lodging or peace of mind or spirit. Many of us in this room probably have something that comes to mind when we think of rest. Uh, Many of us have different activities that might inspire rest in us. Some people gain a great deal of rest from hunting or from the outdoors. Some people gain rest from laying on the couch and enjoying the indoors rather than the outdoors. Some people enjoy collecting stamps. I don't really understand that particular activity myself, but if that's something that you do enjoy, by all means, praise God for that. I hope that we as believers all ultimately look to the Sabbath and to the rest of the Lord's Day as something that is a source of rest, although I know that many mornings it can be hectic, it can be difficult to wake up the kids, get them ready, get them out, get them here to church, and it can be all you can do some mornings to get here, and and that in and of itself is an act of grace on God's part. And, um, but nevertheless, there are many ways we can look to rest. I guess the point we have here is simply that uh, there are many ways that we can look at rest. Rest can be a subjective thing. It can be something that is based off of the one who is resting. But I also believe there is a sense of rest which is objective, which is true, which is um, outside of ourselves. I believe that ultimately when we talk about biblical categories, and there is a biblical category of rest, what we are looking at is something which is objective. It's not subjective. It is not something which is up to the eye of the beholder, if we will. Rather, it is something that is meaningful in terms of the truth of God's Word. So I would contend that while many of us have subjective opinions about what it means to rest, there is a purely objective sense of what it means to rest. If there is some absolute source of rest, I believe there is such. Specifically, the real question this morning is, what is the source from which we receive this rest? If rest is the ceasing of labor or a place where we find peace, then what is the well from which we draw such things? As I will hope we will see this morning, the true fount of our rest is the work of Christ. The Bible has much to say of rest. The Lord himself instituted a day of rest for his people in the form of the Sabbath, the last day of the week in which the people were to cease from all their labors. For those in Christ, we have been told by the scriptures that Jesus is our Sabbath, that we are to rest in him. He is the perfect representation of that which was prefigured in the rest of the Sabbath. As Luther put it, Lord sabbath his name from age to age the same. When we gather upon the Lord's day, we partake of the rest which only was given in shadows in the Old Testament, which is the testimony of the author of Hebrews. And Hebrews is such a fantastic work in terms of the fact that it relays so very clearly the continuity between the Old and the New Testament. The fact that what we see in the Old Testament in terms of the types and the shadows, the forms, the shapes of things which were ultimately to have full flesh and fruition In the revelation of Jesus Christ himself, it is so clearly and eloquently given by this author, who I wish more than anything we knew the name of the author. Nevertheless, ultimately the Lord himself has not given us that, but we understand that the Holy Spirit, through this unknown author, has spoken to us in such a way so that we can understand these things, and so that we may know these things infallibly and perfectly. One of the most powerful aspects of this work is the way in which it echoes and shadows the Old Testament and shows those echoes in such a way that they manifest the full substance which is in Christ. So let us take a look at one of these types and shadows this morning. Uh, Let us turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3, where we will take our reading from the Word of God this morning. Hebrews chapter 3, and we will read the full chapter. Not a long chapter, only 19 verses. And if you would, as is our custom, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word, if you are able. So the author of Hebrews, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, declares, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house Has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confession and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness. Well, your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God." But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter because of unbelief. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the fact that your word has gone forth, Lord. We thank you for the fact that, um, as the unnamed author here himself said, your word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord, cutting to the very thoughts and intents of our hearts, Lord. I ask that even now it is working and it is effective to reach in and do that surgical work which needs to be done, which is to reach into the very thoughts and intents of every person this morning, Lord. Every man, woman, and child, Lord, I pray that your word is working by your Holy Spirit and is able to reach to the very depths of our souls, Lord, so that we may may be impressed with the truth of your word. We thank you for your grace, your goodness, and your glory. We thank you for the fact that uh, you have sanctified us if we are in you by your word, Lord. We know that your word is truth and that in it, is the full manifestation of truth, Lord, because it reveals to us Christ, and we know that in Christ is the embodiment, the living, dwelling embodiment of that word which has come, Lord. We thank you for these things, Lord. We thank you for these precious truths of the Scripture, Lord. I ask that you would uh, prepare our minds and our hearts, give us a heart to search these things, Lord, as the Bereans, to see if they are so, Lord, uh, to seek out uh, critically, yet also believing, to understand these things, to recognize the truth of your, your gospel. Lord, I just ask that you would uh, be with the one who's delivering the message this morning, Lord. guide his lips, that he may say nothing that would lead any astray, but that it would be holy from your word, Lord, because we know that uh, it is true living water, Lord. It is the water of life, Lord, and I pray that we have it this morning. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your son. Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. amen. Amen. You may be seated. So, to begin this morning, let's begin with the obvious place, which is the beginning of the passage. Consider the words of the author. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. We are exhorted to consider the apostle and high priest of our calling, Christ Jesus. Normally, we do not exhort or consider Christ as a, an apostle. Clearly, he is not an apostle in the same way that Paul or Peter or John are apostles. What the writer of Hebrews seeks to convey is that which the word apostle originally conveyed, that of a messenger, a sent one, it literally means, one who was sent forth from heaven. John reiterates this reality of Christ's work in his gospel when he says in John 3.13, No one is ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of man who is in heaven. Jesus sent forth the apostles to relay his message, to relay the message of his truth. In turn, as Christ was sent into the world from heaven to relay to us a full and perfect revelation, the very incarnation of the word of God. As it says in John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The eternal word, which existed in eternity with the Father, took on flesh. There can be no greater apostolic message than that, which is that God has himself come into the world. The second person of the Trinity, the Son, took on human flesh. As it says in John 1.14, And the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And I think many of us have heard those words. Yeah, I don't think... Many of us really feel the full impact of that statement and how incredible that statement is, considering the fact that for so many that would be such a foolish message that the eternal God of the ages has taken upon the frail f- flesh of man. There have been many great men, wise men, and learned men throughout the ages who have struggled and wrestled with this. Um, the great philosopher Spinoza, he wrestled with this. When men came to evangelize him, he said, I can grasp the idea of an eternal God. I can grasp the idea of one who has created the earth. I cannot grasp the idea of one who was the creator of all things, who is eternal, who is above and greater than all these things, and he has been made flesh like man. That was something that Spinoza could not understand. That is a thing that many throughout the ages have not been able to understand. And by the Holy Spirit himself, he has revealed that to your heart this morning. Then you are truly blessed to truly partake of these things. Which this is a great mystery. It is one which we cannot even begin to really fully fathom the depths of. There's so much truth and wisdom, and, and there's so much depth to what John is saying here, yet we have only a time to scratch the surface this morning. But let us be rest assured, the greatest apostolic message, the greatest message of one being sent into the world is the fact that the word himself, the one who was there with God at the beginning, who is himself as to his nature deity, who is eternal, who by him all things were created, who is the very embodiment of the word of God, of that revelation which has been given, that one was made flesh. And dwelt among us, and as John said, we beheld his glory. The glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He was sent much as Moses was sent to lead us into rest. Christ, like Moses, is faithful to the one who sent him. Yet Christ is so much greater than Moses who came before. He is the one to whom Moses looked as a full fruition of that which he was sent to perform. Moses longed to see Christ's day, as Abraham longed to see Christ's day, and told the people to look for him. The Lord relayed by Moses, saying in Deuteronomy eighteen, eighteen through 19 I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. Moses and Hebrews are unified at this point. Christ is our Deliverer. He is our Prophet. He is our Apostle. Yet He is greater than those that came before Him or those that were sent after Him. He is a Deliverer, as Moses delivered the people from Egypt. He is a Prophet, as Moses was a Prophet who spoke on behalf of God to His people and relayed Him to those beneath Him. And He is an Apostle, as the Apostles our Lord sent were sent forth into the world to give the gospel. Yet he is greater than all of those others because of his right of sonship. He is greater than Moses as Moses is only a servant. Yet Christ is the Son. The Son, Hebrews tells us, is exalted even above the angels. Uh, The first chapter of Hebrews quotes uh, Deuteronomy 32, 43 of Christ when it says, Angels bow and serve him. Let all the angels of God worship him. Therefore, Hebrews says, for this one has been counted worthy and more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. Christ has greater rights than Moses. He has greater authority than Moses. And why does he have that authority? Because he has the right of sonship. And this is not a hard concept for us to grasp. We understand the concept of sonship. We understand even in our concept where we don't have household servants. That's not something that is a very common practice of this day and age. In past times, even in our own culture, that was very common, but it is not so now. With regards to this, in the ancient world, that was a very common practice of having servants within the house. P- these servants would live and reside in the house, and had some aspects of it that they were if they were faithful, they were considered good servants, and they, of course, there were also those who were considered bad servants. But nevertheless, a servant had some rights in the house, had some authority, but we all understand the concept. The servant, though he may be faithful, though he may be true to the word, though he may fall in those things, he cannot have the same rights as the one who is the natural born son of the house. The son has the right to the house. The son is the one who will take possession of the house. The son, because he, he is the direct descendant of the father, he is the one who has a right to that which belongs to the father. So in the same sense, Moses... He was a servant, and it's important here to think uh, that with regards to what um, Hebrew says, it does not apply the typical phraseology of servant to Moses in this passage. It does not apply the term that is most common, doulos, which is oftentimes rendered servant, sometimes is also rendered slave, because it simply means the lowliest of servants. But that is not the term that is applied to Moses here. Rather, what's applied to Moses is a much higher term, a term that indicates one who has some authority in the house, one who manages and directs things in the house. So Moses is not a doulos, he is not a slave, but he is a faithful servant. Nevertheless, even if he is a faithful servant, he is not the son. And that distinction must be held. Just as Abraham had his faithful servants, and had even servants who, before he had a son, had right to the things in his household he considered them like a son nevertheless when isaac came because he was truly the son he was the one who inherited the house and in the same sense our lord jesus though there have been faithful prophets and that have came before there have been faithful servants of our lord jesus who have come before there are many many have come before him who have preached faithfully the word of god as fallibly and ineptly as they could They were guarded by the Holy Spirit, yet they were mere flesh, mere mortals like ourselves. They went into the dust much as ourselves will one day go into the dust. But Jesus is not so. Jesus is not like them. He is distinct from them. He is so much greater than them. John says of him that all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. He is not only the one who owns the house, he is the one who built the house. He made all things, he created all things. Paul affirms this when he says of him in Colossians 1, 15-16, that he is the, invis- the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him And for him. And what a powerful statement that is of the true nature of Jesus Christ, that he is the creator of all things. And what Paul was trying to emphasize, he was trying to emphasize to those of his day who were trying to allege, well, no, Jesus is just a creature. He is the first great creature, but he is a creature made by God. And Paul is saying, no, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the one through whom everything else was created. He is the firstborn. That does not mean simply that he was. Created, that does not, is not the idea of that term, prototokos in the Greek. What that indicates, rather, is one who is having the first right of sonship, who has supremacy over all others, is the idea that is being conveyed. And ultimately, what Paul is trying to emphasize to those who are listening to him is that he is the firstborn, he is preeminent over all creation, and he has rights and he has authority which no creature. Can ever have because of the fact that he made everything, everything was created by him, everything that it came into heaven into existence, whether that was in the heavens or in the earth, which that is in a Hebrew form, a way of saying everything. When a Hebrew says the heaven and the earth, he means everything that encompasses all things that are created that fall in the line of creation. And, of course, we understand the Hebrew Scriptures emphasize that fact in Genesis 1-1 when it says, there is one who creates all things. And it says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So there is one who created all things. And so Paul is emphasizing, no, Jesus is not a creature. He is not one who is of a lesser degree. Rather, he is the one who created the heavens and the earth. And by extension, the implication of that is that he is the uncreated one, he is Yahweh. He is the creator God. Christ is clearly attested as the creator of all things. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the expression image of him, and through him were all things made. Therefore, as a builder has more authority than the house he built, God has authority over his creation. For every house is built by someone, Hebrews says, but he who built all things is God. Christ is the creator of all things. He is the one who made all things. He is God himself, the second person of the Godhead. He is co-equal, co-eternal, the second person, which is the Son, who was in the bosom of the Father before the world was and has a communion with the person of the Father and the Holy Spirit in eternity past before the world was. This one, Hebrew says, is our deliverer. The Father sent a man, Moses, to lead his people to the rest of the promised land. The Father sent the Son to deliver us, his people, into the rest of his salvation. The Son who made the house of creation we see around us, Hebrew says, but is Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. We have been raised up in Christ and are a spiritual household that is raised to be with him because we When he had by himself purged our sins, Hebrews 1.3 says, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He has purged our sins and made us one in him. In his priestly work, he has provided a full and perfect sacrifice in himself, which is sufficient for the saving of our souls, the washing of our sins, and the building up of us together, which Peter says of us in 1 Peter 2.5, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a royal priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. So these are the things which Christ does for us. This is how Christ acts as our apostle, as our deliverer, as our mediator, as the one who stands between us, as the one who has been sent forth into the world to deliver a message. Much as those that came before, yet I emphasize the fact that the message he has given is so much mightier, so much greater, and is of such a magnitude more than all that which came before him. That is why it says in Hebrews 1 one and 2, Hebrews tries to set the tone here. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. So what do we understand of Christ? He is the one who made the worlds. He is the one who created all things. He is the one who spoke in times past by the prophets. God spoke through the prophets in times past. He did give a revelation. Truly, he did give the word of God. Jesus himself affirms the fact that the Holy Scriptures we see in the Old Testament are the word of God, are those very things which God spoke and which God intended for us to have. Yet he also affirms the fact that you search the Scriptures thinking that you will find life in them. Yet you do not understand, he says to the Hebrews, they are they which testify of me. They are they which speak of me. He is the embodiment of that word. John makes that point very clear in John one, that in the beginning was the word. There is a word, and then there is the word. The word is Christ. Christ is The living word, he is the embodiment of that word which has been spoken by the prophets in times past. But now because the word is no longer simply words that were given by sinful men, but rather it is that which has been made flesh and come into the world and dwelt among us. And the fact that there have been those among us even in time who beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full in grace and truth. Now we have this full, perfect and complete revelation which shows to us the fact that he is able to make amends for our souls in a way which never could be done before. Could not be accomplished apart from Him. And ultimately, Hebrews makes the point, not only could it not be accomplished apart from Him, it never could have been. Because not a single sacrificial system that came before was ever sufficient to fully atone for our sins. Ultimately, it all came back to the reality of Christ, who is the one who ultimately saves. So who is the source of our rest? Hebrews is making a very clear point here, and he's drawing a parallel. Our final rest shall be in Christ, who is our Sabbath. Therefore, we ought to seek to enter his rest. But what does it mean to enter his rest? And why does the author of Hebrews give such stark warnings not to fall short of it? The author here quotes Psalm 95. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, in the days of trial in the wilderness. Will your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The author quotes David, who points back to a time when the people of Israel despaired of entering the promised land, even as they were poised to enter. When the spies came back from the land and gave a gloomy report of a land full of well-fortified cities and filled with giants, The people clamored one with another. Numbers 14, 1-3 records, So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in the wilderness, why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? The people in unbelief, began to despair of the promises that God had made to them and instead began to seek to return to the land of Egypt from whence they had come. The Lord, in anger, resolved to destroy the people. Yet Moses pleaded on their behalf, and the Lord relented of destroying them utterly. Yet the unbelief of that generation did not go unpunished. Numbers 14, 28-29 records, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in the wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to the entire number from 20 years old and above. Because of their unbelief, the generation that rebelled against the Lord perished. Every single one in the wilderness wandering. They did not trust the promises of God, and therefore they did not enter into His rest. The rest prefigured in the promised land points to that perfect rest which we have in Christ, who promises us rest from the dreadful wilderness of sin and deliverance from ultimate spiritual death in the lake of fire. The Lord Jesus stands with outstretched hands to all who will come to him, and he says of his rest in Matthew 11:28 through 29 Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and, will fi- and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is both a temporal rest, a rest that happens now, a rest from the pains of sin and the shame and guilt and fear of a pending judgment that looms over the soul of every person, but it is also an eschatological rest, a rest which ultimately will be fulfilled in the fact that we will not come into final condemnation in judgment on the last day. When all those who are outside of him will face eternal punishment in the lake of fire. The author of Hebrews gives stern warning to his readers not to fall short of the rest of Christ. But again, how does one fall short of his rest? Is it a failure of labors? Does this mean that we are in fact saved by works? Not at all. But rather what the author points out to those that look at it is that they fell short because of the fact that they possessed an evil heart of unbelief. The people of Israel, why did they not, were not they not able to enter into the promised land? It's not because of what necessarily their actions or their works, it was not because they didn't work hard enough. They did not believe the promises which God had given to them. God had promised them the land, God had promised them that they would enter, and pro- God had promised that He was going to give them victory in the taking of this land, yet they would not believe. When the spies came back and they had seen great and terrible things, they had seen the fact that the land was filled with giants. It was filled with these great and tall and mighty men, and there were well-fortified cities. They began to look at that, and they quaked, and they feared, and they began to fear man rather than they trusted in the promises of God. And ultimately, they despaired, and that led to a fact of not only distrusting God, but outright rebellion, as the psalmist says. It says they rebelled against God. They feared man so much that they ultimately did not fear God and and lost fear to such a degree that they were willing to even rebel completely against what he had said to them. They were ready to kill Moses and Aaron. They were ready to completely just throw it all in the trash. Everything that had happened, everything that had been done, and all go back to Egypt. And by no means were the people of Israel at all treated well in, in Egypt. They were not treated well in that land. They were slaves in that land. They were abused in that land. They were tortured in that land. But nevertheless, they were fed in that land. And how often, in the midst of such things, how often do we trade the true blessedness and glories of Christ for a few stale morsels of bread which we can find in sin and in death? How oftentimes we would trade the uncertainty that we have in the rest of Christ, because there is definitely a certain aspect of faith and uncertainty. But nevertheless, we trade those things for the familiar comforts of sin. We trade those things for the familiar comforts of that which came before. And that's ultimately what Egypt symbolizes here. It points to that which is the old life, the old world, the old things that came before, all those things that in Christ should pass away. The things that came before, they must pass away. And ultimately, all things must be made new. But there is that temptation. And it is a human temptation to seek those things, the comfort in things that are familiar. And that's really just human nature at the very most basic level. We are comforted by things which are familiar. We are comforted by those things which are usual. Usual. Where we get uncomfortable, where we start to fear is when we're placed in a situation which is outside of the norm, outside of what we're normally comfortable with. And ultimately what we find is that sometimes when we're in those situations, we seek those things which we are familiar with that are comfortable to us in order to in some way comfort us against those things which are truly terrifying to us, the uncertainty which is truly terrifying to our souls. And so it becomes much the same way with Christ here. Christ is a faithful high priest. He is a faithful apostle of the word, and he is one who stands with outstretched hands to welcome us into his rest. Yet we also know there is definitely some uncertainty with that because we also recognize the fact that he is asking us to do things which naturally no man actually wants to do, and such things as, if any man would be my disciple, let him deny himself and pick up his cross and follow me. That is a hard thing for the natural man to accept. That is a hard thing for man in his sinful state to, to come to. And I would actually argue it's an impossible thing for man in his natural state to come to. I believe it actually requires the supernatural aspect of the Holy Spirit working in a heart, removing the heart of stone which naturally exists in the heart of man, and then placing within him a heart of flesh so that he may be able to believe those things. If that does not happen, it is impossible for any man to truly deny himself because every man loves himself. Every man truly loves and cherishes himself. We've got such a toxic infatuation in our society with self-love and self-care. We're indulgent to the max with regards to how much we talk about the fact that we need to love ourselves and take care of ourselves. My friend, I assure you this morning, you do not need any help in loving yourself or taking care of yourself. In fact, the opposite is true. Jesus commands us in the great commandment to love your neighbor as, your, as yourself there have been false teachers who have come and said see look jesus affirms the fact you've got to love yourself because how can you love your neighbor if you don't help yourself or you don't love yourself but the fact is it doesn't say that what it says is in context love your neighbor as yourself taking for granted the fact that you already love yourself far too much than you actually need to that's the distinction So they could not enter in because of an evil heart of unbelief. They did not trust in the promises of God. They did not yield to that which was said. So as a result of that, there was punishment. All of them ultimately perished. All of them died of that generation. They were sent out into the wilderness to wander for 40 years. It's not a long trek from Egypt to Israel. It's not a long way distance between those two things. It's three days walk, actually. You can get there fairly quickly between Israel and Egypt. So why did it take 40 years to get there? Well, it didn't take 40 years to get there. What ultimately happened was the unbelief of the people led them to be cast into the wilderness so that they wandered for 40 years, wandering, searching, unable to ever get actually where they need to be because of the fact that they did not trust in the promises of God. My friend, this morning, we need to recognize the fact that we can be wandering, cast adrift, Sin is a wilderness. Sin is that which is, allows us to be cast adrift. We wander through, cast about on the ocean like driftwood, aimless, directionless, unable to have any ultimate place to go. And ultimately, our only hope at that point is sure and certain destruction, drowning in the depths. That is the reality of sin. Christ offers us another way. Christ offers us rest from sin. He offers us rest from judgment. He offers us rest from the fear which every the heart of man knows intimately. We all know what it means to fear. Because ultimately fear is a product of sin. The fact that we fear the, fear the darkness. The fact that we fear punishment. The fact that we fear these things. They are... Uh, descended out of that. And, of course, there is an aspect of fear which is healthy and good. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom, but there is such a fear that is sinful and is derived from sin. And, of course, as John says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. For in fear there is a fear of coming judgment. Ultimately, all unbiblical and all sinful fear is that which hates and despises and dreads the ultimate coming when all things that are in the dark will be made in the light. That final day of judgment when every single thought and intention of the heart of every single person that's ever lived will be made known and revealed with perfect clarity. We do not like that thought, and that's not an uncomfortable thought for most people, to think that everything you've ever thought, everything you ever said, everything you've ever done, ultimately can be made known. Completely and fully. And ultimately knowing that there is no way you can hide from God. There is no way you can hide from the Lord. There's no way you can ultimately hide yourself from Him. Because He is everywhere. He knows you. He is intimately aware of everything you think, everything you say, everything you do. It does not matter whether someone sees you or not. He is there. As the Psalms declares, he says in Psalm 139 verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So there is nowhere we can go to escape him. You can run as Jonah ran, but Jonah could not escape. Jonah could not flee the hand of the Lord. No man can flee the hand of the Lord. Ultimately, he holds every single one of us. In fact, if he did not uphold us, we would cease to exist. We would cease to be completely descend into nothingness. He upholds you this morning by the very word of his power. And he sustains you, even in the midst of sin and unbelief. And that's an amazing thing. The most rank and wicked sinner this morning, the most vile atheist who spends every single breath hating and rebelling against God. He is given that breath by Christ. He is held together by the hand of God himself as he rebels against him. And that is such an amazing thing. Every single moment that we have is unmerited grace from God. I think that In my own opinion, some people would argue that there is no such thing as common grace, but I I do believe there is an absolute common grace of God, which that common grace is this, that every single person on this planet is allowed another day to exist when we have, from the very moment we have been born, rebelled against Him and cursed Him and hated Him. That is such an incredible act of mercy and grace upon a just and holy God against such... Rank and rebellious sinners that we cannot even begin to quantify or imagine the true depth of that. But what distinguishes those that wander, those that perish, and those that ultimately go into rest? There's no difference between us who believe in Christ if we do believe in Christ, and those who, when they were at the at the door of the promised land, rebelled and ultimately perished in the wilderness. What is the distinctive mark? Hebrews 4 gives us that answer. For indeed, the gospel is preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. We have then heard the gospel, Hebrews says, as well as those in the wilderness. They received the words of life as much as we have received the words of life. Yet it is clear, then, that merely hearing the word of life is not sufficient to enter into rest. We understand that faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God, but not hearing in itself does not equate to faith. Those Hebrews in the wilderness heard Christ's words, and yet they did not believe. Therefore, it is faith that is required in order to enter in. Yet when we speak of faith, we are not speaking of mental assent merely. We are not merely saying, do you know these things? Have you heard these things? Have you considered these things? A man can naturally say, well, yes, I, I think that's a possibility. I certainly think that what you have presented is a logical argument. Yes, I've heard of Christ. Yes, I've heard what he has done. Yes, I understand that he has died for sin. Yes, I understand these things. I even understand that if I believe in him, I will have eternal life. I understand those things, but that does not necessarily equate to faith. That doesn't equate as necessarily to a saving faith. You might even be convinced of those things. You might say, well, that's true. That's right. That is is absolutely the case. But that even in itself falls short of true faith. Because the fact is, faith is something that is so much more than that. It's not merely saying you assent to something or you know something, you recognize that something. James, that makes that point very clear in James 2, 19 and 21. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Do you not know? O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son upon the altar? It could well be said that Abraham was justified by faith. We would say that Abraham was justified by faith. For as the scripture declares of him, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Yet the true metal of his faith, the true substance of his faith, is clearly manifested in the fact that he willingly went so far as to sacrifice Isaac upon the altar, knowing full well that he would trust God and whatever he directed him, regardless of the consequences. And that is a hard and a difficult passage to really truly fathom, but nevertheless, it is true. It is the word of life. So it is not here that we're saying that works justify, but rather faith justifies, and that the faith that is true and real is one that works. The true faith does not merely assent to what God has said. The true faith stakes everything, even our very lies upon the promises of God, knowing that he is faithful and that he cannot lie in anything he has promised to us. Therefore, Hebrews urges us today, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Today, do not harden your hearts. Today, do not let sin deceive you. Today, listen to the voice of the one who calls you. There is an urgency to this message, to hear this Christ's voice today, knowing that we are called to rest in him. But what are we resting from? We are resting from our own effort. What was the answer for the Hebrews who first heard this? In context, if we understand what the altar was trying to combat, he was speaking to a group of Hebrew believers who were wavering who were a group of people who were wavering between continuing in the true faith they had been converted to, which was Christ, or returning to the faith of Judaism, to the faith of the Hebrews. And so the application that the author of Hebrews here, he's giving them a story that they would know very intimately, a story from the Old Testament, from their scriptures, which is the story of those who perish in the wilderness. And he's saying, look, do not perish when you were right there at the door, do not go back to Egypt, the Egypt of that old law of works and effort and struggle where you were attempting by your own merit to get, gain entry into the gate when you're right there at the door, poised to enter in. Do not fall back from that even now at this point is his encouragement to those people. And this, the same encouragement should stand for us even now today. Do not turn away when you're right there at the door, That leads into life. Do not fall back. Do not fall short of that glory. Which you stand poised to attain. You are even there at the gate. If you are here this morning. Because you are hearing the word. Which God has given. And you are hearing the things. The words which are life. So do not fall back from that to those things which came before. Do not fall back to the old life which came before. And for them, that was the struggle and the effort to maintain their own salvation by their own work and their own merit. But that could also be the life of sin and temptation which so many of us have been saved out of. So ultimately, his lesson is do not turn back. Do not listen to the voice of the word. Listen to the voice of the word. He is the one who is giving us life. So we need to listen to him and follow him and not rest in our own effort, in our own struggle to please him because it is an easy temptation, probably the easiest temptation in the world. And that's why every single false religion in the world ultimately points to one thing, which is that you can please God based off of what you do. There is one religion on this earth that has ever said that you are completely, utterly and helplessly incapable of satisfying a just and holy God, and you need a mediator between you and man, between you and God in order that you might have life. There is one religion, and that is the true religion which is in Christ. And we have to understand that. Do not seek to please Him with your own words. It's a great temptation. I think it's a natural temptation for every, every person to try to stake things on what they're doing, upon their effort, upon the things that they have that they can pick up and hold up to God and say, look, God, look at what I did. Look at what I have offered. And ultimately, we understand that that is pointless and worthless because what does the scripture say? Isaiah 64, 6, but we are as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. My friend, if your righteousness is filthy rags, how will you be able to atone for your sin? If your righteousness is filthy rags, how will you ever be able to please him? The answer is, you cannot. Paul says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. No one will be justified by their own efforts before him. Yet as Paul says in Romans 4, 5-6, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from the words, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So how shall we process these words? I wish to really leave us with two final words from this passage. I wish the first offer a word of comfort to the weary and second, a word of warning to the wavering. To the weary, I say this, there is one who is able to carry the burden that you carry. Whatever burdens you face in life today, whatever struggles, whatever sins, whatever failures, they are those which Christ can and will intercede on your behalf. If you are in Christ today, have you considered the apostle and high priest of our confession? Have you considered that Christ intercedes for you? Have you considered the labors which Christ even now expends on your behalf, even in the midst of your failures, even in the midst of your sin, even in the midst of your burden? And knowing this, will you continue to spurn the perfect work of your great high priest and instead substitute the efforts of the flesh? Will you, as Jeremiah said, leave the wells of living water to dig for yourselves cisterns that hold no water? For consider, what does the Holy Spirit say of the high priest? Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast the confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Have you not considered the work that Christ has done for you? As he passed into the heavens, and even now is at the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ is a high priest of so much greater caliber than the faulty priesthood of the Levites that came before him. He is eternal. He is sinless. He is, as the scriptures say, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He is perfect in all his ways. Yet, fretting sinner, take heart, for he is one who knows what you feel in your afflictions. For what does the scripture say? He was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Have you ever considered the fact that Christ was tempted? Have you ever really thought about that? Does it strike you? Christ knows what you feel when you are tempted, even if he himself in perfection never sinned. The apple of temptation was laid before the senses of our Lord, yet he never once let it blossom into sin. For James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, Nor does he himself tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Some may ask, how can Hebrews say that God cannot be tempted, or how can James say that God cannot be tempted, and yet say that Christ, who he identifies as God, as the creator of the universe, then be tempted just as we are? yet we must remember that Christ, though fully God, was also one who was likewise fully man. He had flesh just as we are. He ate. He slept. He thirsted. He cried. He mourned. He danced. As every man was, Christ was, yet without sin. It is is this great mystery that God, the second person of the Trinity, took on humanity, which ought to make us feel awe and wonder and likewise should drive us to tears, as Paul says, of Christ, Being in the form of God, he did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Know this, that Christ indwells the fullness of Godhead bodily. He is the express image of the Father. He is at his, as to his nature deity. He is fully God, which means he is able to overcome the sins in your life and to make a perfect atonement for them in the work of his cross. And yet know that he is in every sense a man as us, so that he is able to meet you in the midst of your pain, and he is able to hold you with nail-scarred hands that are able to comfort you in a way that no other could because he knows you and he loves you as his. And he desires to give you rest from your burdens if you will come to him. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the source of our rest. Know that you can come to him and he will incline his ear to you. Know that he is there to hear from you. I would say this, of all the damnable lies the Roman church has foisted upon the world, one of the most hellish is the fact that they say that the Lord Jesus is so cold, so unfeeling and so unmoved by us that we must go to his mother in order that she might somehow get his ear so that he might hear us. My friend, you don't need to go to Mary this morning. You don't need any other mediator save Christ. Understand that Christ himself is full of grace this morning and is one who is there to hear you. He knows you. He understands you. He understands what it's like to be a human being. And he understands your pain and your suffering. We need no mediator between us and Christ. Rather, we stand in need of his mediation. Know that if you are his, he sweat drops of blood for you in the garden. Know that he prayed for you in his high priestly prayer. Know that he made a curse, he was made a curse upon the tree for you. Know that the Father poured out his wrath that you owed upon him. Know that he pleads to the Father for you and pleads for you upon the merits of the blood which he shed. Beloved, I wish you to know these things. If you are in him, I wish you to know the very heart of Christ for you. But at the same time, this must also come with a word of warning. Take heed of yourselves, that you do not fall short of his rest. Do not, when you have tasted of the heavenly gift, and seen the riches of his glory, and been enlightened to those things that are his, turn back again to the Egypt from whence you have come. Do not reject the perfect work of Christ and run back to the Egypt of your own works. Do not reject that which Christ has done perfectly, thinking that your own efforts can amount to anything before him. It is the absolute apex of pride, arrogance, and rebellion for man in his helpless, sinful state to turn his back on the outstretched arms of a perfect and complete Savior and seek to satisfy his debt with the balance of his own works. It is beyond foolishness. It is beyond reckless. It is an abomination before the Lord to do so. How dare that such a one as that came from the dust reject the olive branch of the Almighty for the filthy rags of his own works. There will be greater condemnation upon those who reject the work of Christ for their own. As the psalmist declares, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Some might say that is not really a good Calvinist thing to say. Take heed that you fall short of God's grace. But I would urge you, the biblical parameter, I'm not arguing that any would lose their salvation. But I ask you be take heed of yourselves and be guarded because there is the possibility that we are not in him. There's always that chance that in truth, the reality of grace is not one which has been truly applied to us. All the extraneous things may be in place, and yet a person can still fall short of life. You may give yourself over to prayer and supplication. You may give yourself over to Bible study, to teaching and evangelism, and still fall short of life. What says Jesus himself? Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name and done many wonderful works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, take heed of yourselves, for it is still, it is not in the forms of religion that you can hope for eternal rest. Your gifts of preaching, your ability to cast out demons or do many wonderful works cannot be substituted for what truly we are called to be and to do. And we must recognize the distinction that, we do, that what we do must reflect who we are rather than what we do being the source of what we are. If we are to have life, what we must be based on is not upon our works but on the works of another. As Jesus himself says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches." He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Without me, you can do nothing. You must abide in Christ if you are to have life. Your hope, your life must be in him. You must be in him so fully that you may say as Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. May your hope and your life be hid in Christ. If you have any hope of life, that is where it will be. What separates us today from those that perish? It is faith in the perfect work of our high priest, Jesus Christ. What separates us from those who perish, even as those that perish in the wilderness of the people of Israel? It is that our hearing of the word is mixed with faith in the work of the Son. Therefore, hold fast to this solemn confession. If you have believed, stay yourselves upon this truth, It is the only truth which ultimately will matter. If you have not believed, hear what the Holy Spirit says today. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to trust in the Lord. Do not put this off another day. Do not say to yourselves, as so many have said, another day. Those infernal words ring hollow eternally in the tortured halls of hells for ages without end. Those words will perish within the lake of fire. How many souls have went into eternal damnation saying, another day? Those infernal words are ones which should not fall upon any lips. Rather, there is only one thing you can trust this morning. You have no promise of another day. So therefore, believe on Christ today. There is only one opportunity that you may have. Do not presume upon the mercy that holds you out of hell this morning. As I mentioned before, he upholds you by his hand. He is keeping your body together. He is giving you breath, but that is mercy And that is indeed mercy, but that is mercy not to be presumed upon, not to be taken for granted because that mercy can go away in an instant and be gone. It can be over in a moment's time. Remember that death waits for no one. Young or old, he does not tarry. As Shakespeare said, this fell sergeant, death is strict in his arrest. And yet of more value, think of the scriptures which testify that it is written for man once to die and after the judgment. Death cannot be pushed off cannot be bargained with, cannot be bartered, cannot be pushed away, cannot be stayed away another day, cannot be ignored, you will face Him. Or if not, know that if you do not face death, then you will face Christ face to face when He comes in power and glory as He testifies in Revelation, Surely I come quickly. And I'll tell you this, though death may be ugly and his face may be terrifying, there is no terror that can be understood. Death's terror does not stand in the light of the terror of the eyes of Christ on that great day to those that are outside of him who will behold him in his face and see the tongue, the sword that comes out of his mouth. That will be a terrible, a great, and a mighty day, and there will be a great torment on that horrid day. Understand that you do not have the time to tarry. My friends, understand the fact that even now there is mercy that holds him back, but, and that is the only reason he has not come back is mercy upon those that have yet to believe in him. But do not presume upon that. Whether by the grave or his coming, you will face him. If not in him, you will face a swift and sudden fury, the likes of which none can imagine. Though I have spoken of his love and care for his sheep, I cannot stress enough the fury and terror he will unleash upon his enemies. Do not be found outside of him on that great and terrible day. Look to him and live. He is your only hope. I trust and I will pray for you because of the fact that I know that this Jesus I speak of is one who stands with outstretched hands and says, come unto me all you that labor and heavy laden. He will give you rest, but do not take that to mean that I can come when I want or do not take that to mean that one day when he comes on that great final day that it will not be a horror to behold because it will be it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living god so if anything here could be the sum, let it be this christ is our rest search wherever you can you will find no rest from your labors outside of him trust in whatever you like it will not satisfy as christ can satisfy he is the well of living water he is lord of the sabbath i pray you know him in this way i pray that if you belong to him you realize that he is the perfect high priest who loves you and gave himself for you. I wish for you to hold fast to that confession, not leaning upon your own understanding or upon your own works, for they will not hold you up, but Christ will stay your feet. Maybe you are weary this morning. Christ can lift that burden from you. Maybe you feel inadequate or unable to stand. I can assure you, most certainly you are, and you must throw yourself upon Christ for mercy. Maybe you are wavering this morning. I ask that you not turn back. For there will be great judgment for those who neglect so great a salvation. The word is powerful, and its powerful power is twofold. It softens the heart unto life, or it hardens hearts prepared for greater judgment. Press into him today. Press into the kingdom of God. Remember, there may, be, may not come yet another day. Press in unless you find yourself, like the Hebrew children, poised to take the promised land and falling short of life even as they are at the door. Take heed lest you fall and slip in the judgment even as you are poised at heaven's door. Pray to him to save you and lean on him to plead for you and hold on to him that you may one day stand with him in glory. Let us pray. Father, the hours has come in which the word has been preached. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity this morning to Lay your word, Lord. I thank you for the truths that are contained in, therein. I thank you for the fact that we have such a great high priest in your son, Jesus Christ, in the second person of the Trinity, Lord, the one to whom we owe all things, Lord, who made us, who sustains us, who upholds us by the power of his word, and who at the same time came into creation that we who believe in him might have life by his taking upon himself our sin and by his righteousness be applied and imputed to our account. Lord, we thank you for the fact that this morning we have that to stand upon, Lord, if we stand in him. And I pray this morning that each of us have truly placed our trust in Jesus Christ and are standing in him this morning for our salvation. But if there be any under the sound of my voice that do not know you, Lord, I just pray that uh, they would come to you, that you would draw them unto yourself that you would uh, draw them by your sovereign hand, Lord, because we know ultimately that you are the one who removes the heart of stone from the flesh and gives a heart of flesh unto those that will believe, Lord. And unless you do it, unless the Lord does build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I know we can do nothing in ourselves, Lord. Help us to lean upon you for all things because we know without without you, we can do nothing. Lord, we just thank you for the fact that you are a gracious and merciful Savior. We thank you for the fact that you are our deliverer are the one who delivered us out of the hands of bondage lord out of slavery into freedom which is in christ we thank you for the fact that your your son is the one who has come into creation was made flesh to mediate upon our behalf becoming our propitiation the offering for our sin lord and also the one to whom we earn whose righteousness becomes that which allows us to stand before you justified. And we thank you for the fact that your spirit, Lord, even now goes forward in his power and his glory to convict the world of sin, Lord, and convict the hearts of men so that they might be drawn unto you and believe in the gospel, which is life. We thank you for these things, Lord. We thank you for your gracious mercy and the fact that we are sanctified by your truth this morning, Lord. We know that thy word is true. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen.